And now, do you like Prince movies? Hey everybody, welcome to Do You Like Prince Movies? I'm Alex Papadimus. I'm Wesley Morris. And this week we're going to talk about San Andreas and American Disaster Movies. And we will also talk about Cameron Crowe's Aloha. And of all the meanings of Aloha, which 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 most apply to Cameron Crowe's career at this point. <laughs> uh but first, I just wanted to we're gonna we're gonna talk about a couple of things before we go to those things very briefly. Um There's a song and it's driving me crazy. I can't escape it. Sometimes I work from home and it's summertime. At least it was until today. It's really cold out today. Um and I have my windows open. I live on a little street in Brooklyn, and my little street is often full of cars for some reason. And the song that I hear coming out of many of those cars and just walking down the street, you're, you're never going to guess. It's time to begin our summer jam countdown. I'm going to I'm going to throw out this opening salvo. It's it's the it's the it's the cheese song from uh, Furious Seven. The Wiz Khalifa see you again with Charlie Puth. Is that how we say that guy's last name? I don't say it, so I I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't tell you. And that's not that's not shade at uh, Charlie. I, I just, no, no, no. I mean, I I've never said, those... until right now. I've never even said Charlie Puth. Um, but yes, this song is driving me insane. I mean, that wasn't even a pun. I'm sorry if it seemed like one. It is. It's making me crazy. I'm not even ordinarily on a, on a, for such a segment. We would have we would have our excellent producer Joe Fuentes play this song. I'm not going to because. I I can't I can't not hear it too soon. Right, it would be it would be weird. It's playing in your head right now. You couldn't actually if you actually heard it. I mean, maybe that's the way to maybe you need to maybe you need to steer into the the drift. Mm-mm. Grab that grab the wheel and uh, pump the brakes and you know. I can't. It's bad enough in the movie. I can't believe that it's this. So this is not. I asked you this off the air. This is not the Ti Young Thug song that was like the single. From this, this is the montage. Can we? I guess we. we can, I, can we talk about the end of this movie? I don't know. Like people get mad. Spoilers, it's been a month and a half. Spoiler, Good God. spoiler alerts on. Spoiler earmuffs. Okay. This is the song. Yeah, there's a break. There's a pause for that moment. Get what, out what are you about to say? I can't even imagine any. Like but what don't fr- people know from the weird, uncanny valley montage of various. Uh, Paul Walker's Paul Walker stunt isms? doubles that ends Yo. this movie, right? This is that song. So you, right. this yes. is the song yes. where you think yes. about Paul Walker and Vin Diesel's love for each other. Yeah, and this is that song, and it's a it's, it's a hit been song. A long time. <laughs> yes, that. <laughs> I don't even honestly. I don't even remember this song. I live in like a, a world that you would want to live in, where I have not. I I can't even place it mentally. Like when you sing that, I'm like, does that song? Uh, that song could sound like Boys to Men, or it could sound like Lincoln Park. It does sound a little Boys to Many. It does sound like Boys to Men. Anyway, I just wanted to know if you and Joe were hearing this song in Los Angeles everywhere you go, because I hear it all over New York. No, I've been. I, I I have not. Uh, you know, I've been off my uh, my pop radio listening. But it's summer. I need to get into that because we need to start talking about that. You know, the jam sweepstakes. Yeah. 
I'm gonna put this. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put a pin in 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 the month of May and early June as being for that song. I will. And if I if it persists throughout the summer, I mean, it's got to be. It's already a candidate. Yeah, I mean, so part of being the jam of the summer is just just outlasting all the rest of them. Um, I will listen to this on the way home, and 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 think about Paul Walker, and uh, I'll get back to you on that. Okay. Um, my other complaint is that I've been watching a lot of French Open Roland Garros tennis, and um, one of the advertisements is for, I think it's Longines. I don't actually know what the, what these ads are for, to be honest with you. Which is I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but one of the like the song in the ad that plays on every on every station. Um, every place that the French Open is playing, which includes NBC, ESPN, and the Tennis Channel, is uh, this disclosure song called Me and You, or You and Me. Here it is. Have you heard this? I, well, I've heard, yeah. Yeah, I mean you've heard the song, but you've not experienced it experienced it the way I have. Not not at that level, no. Not in like whatever the commercials for the new Lamborghini Countach or whatever you're watching. <laughs> That's exactly it. It's like it's like these it's like a couple at a table, then he's he leaps off a roof in this very exciting way. The guy looks like Romain Dury, the the French actor. Yeah. And I don't really honestly, I don't know what I don't know what's going on in these ads. But they're very sexy, and this song, I, I can't. I mean, it's now in my head, so that it is now like my, my aural oxygen. Like I, I wake up to this with this song in my head, and then the drums come in as they're about to do, and I want to jump off a roof too. Oh, here we go. I mean, disclosure. I don't know. They're like crack dealers. They're amazing. They don't get enough credit in the awesome music production. I mean, every you know the people who talk about music wind up talking about them as producers, but they're they're great. Everything they do is. I mean, even the songs that drive me crazy, I, I can't get out of my brain in in a in a way that's different from from the Furious Seven song. Um, like in a, a somewhat a somewhat good way. Yeah, than... yeah, and a somewhat. I mean, I really like this song. I never tire of hearing of it. Hearing it, um, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there as a, as a, as a for my fellow tennis watchers uh, who are as equally baffled by the by these networks' inability to get other advertisers who have different songs. I'm just you know I'm a little frustrated. I mean, but good, also good like it could be though. worse. Yeah. Yeah, I know. There could there have been many there have been many tennis tournaments that have had much more annoying songs. Um so I should be so lucky lucky to have a disclosure song be be thirty have thirty seconds of disclosure every every other commercial break. But it's like thirty seconds of anything. It's like if you have I, I, I frequently get I don't know how to fix this, but when I get in my car, whatever record I don't have many uh, albums on my phone, but whatever mm-hmm. album is on my phone, I hear a little snippet of it, whether I want to or not, whatever it is in the cloud, you know, like you're, mm-hmm. you're sort of your iTunes. I don't know how to stop this from happening, but 
if I turn my car on and I don't immediately turn on my own music, like to like just go seek something out, I hear the beginning of, you know, that song that Malcolm McLaren remix of uh, "She's Not There" that's in Kill Bill. Oh Part yeah, two. yeah. That yeah. one from his one of his uh, you know speaking one of his very European uh, you know mashup uh, projects that he did at that time. It's yeah. it like it, it it starts this. I, I I've heard the first five seconds of this song literally 40,000 times and I'm ready to I'm like <laughs> I don't know what the solution is I can't get it off my phone it's I don't think that it's on there it's on there in some cloudy way I feel the only solution is to go back in time and stop Malcolm McLaren from making this song is the only way that it will not be on my on it coming on in my car when I turn my car oh my on God. well if there's any way to switch it to disclosure you should just do that <laughs> I would like me and disclosure are going back in time to remix this song just for variety's sake uh, you know that's so yeah it's hard any that you can get I, and I used to like this song and that's why it was on my phone initially and like now I can't yeah so my point is that you know you hear there's something enough times you can you can really you know can burn out on almost anything well, I still have. There's still another. What are we now at the quarterfinals today of the French Open of Roland Garros, and so it means I've got until Sunday, and then Wimbledon's going to start. I'm assuming it's going to be the same sponsors for that too. I've got all summer with this song. Can't wait. Uh, just want to say really quickly before we move on that next week next week we're finally going to talk about Paul Beatty's the sellout. Um, so all the people who were annoyed that we weren't that we didn't discuss it three weeks ago next week if it's going to happen and we're also going to talk about results the andrew bujalski movie with guy pierce and kevin corrigan and colby smolders that i think is really good um so if you haven't seen it i think it's on demand and it might be opening in a city near you on friday it's on my vod it's probably uh, probably on yours i need to do both of those things <laughs> when you say if you haven't seen it that refers to me oh well so I'm going to do there, it there. There's plenty of time. We've got a whole week. We'll be right back with uh, San Andreas. That was a clip from last night in my bedroom. Uh, for everybody. Like an, what if that was the Oscar clip? <laughs> <laughs> for San Andreas, Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Come on, Emma. <laughs> There's a lot of people saying people's names in this movie. Did you notice that? I mean, I know uh, people you know, say people's funny. names in movies. I know that happens. But there's a lot of like 
like just really like just laying out, making sure you know every, Ben, Emma, like just like like Riddick, Mister Riddick, Blake. Yeah, I know everybody's name. You know, it's funny because a good a test for me of something I don't really know what it means because even with with movies I like and with movies I don't I don't remember sometimes what the characters names are but when I sit down to rate I'm often I often am impressed by whether or not I can remember whether or not I have to look at the press notes to 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 remind myself of what a character's name was with this movie I didn't have any trouble go figure um that of course was a clip from San Andreas uh the the earthquake movie starring Dwayne Johnson and Carla Gugino and um, Alexa or Alexandra Daddario. Um, a couple of British guys, Paul Giamatti, the woman, uh, RG Punjabi from the good wife uh, who, you know, not who isn't in this movie. Many people aren't in this movie, but many people do die. Um, it's so bad. <laughs> But it's so fun and it's badness, you know, it's exactly, it's exactly the kind of old school bad disaster movie that you, that you wish you got more of. You know, look, I love, I love The Rock. I really enjoy, I I enjoy these sort of, I enjoy the aura of irony that surrounds The Rock without I wish it would stop surrounding him. I don't, I don't. I think it's the. I mean, the parts of this movie that I enjoyed the best were the, were the were the beginning parts where he's real, sort of like he's the you know the master of his world, and he's just kind of. I don't know. I think he's uh, once it became once it became really solemn. I, you know, I like when he's like tipping the hat and doing cool stuff with the uh, with the with the helicopter. Once it becomes about him, certain you know, like trying to get his family back. I don't know. Yeah. Well. Okay. So we should explain that not only is this an earthquake movie. It is also a divorcing family movie in which the disaster in question is the vehicle by which the divorcing family reunites. Everything is falling apart, literally, but one family. One family. Is coming Just together. One. Just one. <laughs> Everyone else. I mean, there is a – it's interesting because this one I, – I, I saw this on Monday, so I'd had a whole weekend to hear about what people thought of it, you know, to sort of absorb other people's opinions about it. And what is the one thing that everyone is talking about is the fact that The Rock plays a rescue chopper pilot who I guess works for the fire department. Yes. And I say I guess <laughs> – because – and it's really true. I thought people were exaggerating. I thought this was like one of those things where it's like, you know, oh, Tara Reid doesn't know how to talk on a telephone or something like that. It's like, haha, like <laughs> it's a joke that this happens. No, it's pretty – like it's kind of over, an overarching theme of the movie is that The Rock does not care about what's happening to anyone else. The, the minute there's an earthquake, the minute all bets are off, he doesn't even pick up a radio to check in with headquarters about what he needs to do in this situation. What might, what, as a rescue chopper pilot, might, this might be your moment to do, your, to do things. You know, this might be the thing that you've trained for all this time. He's just like, you know what? <laughs> Nothing I, this is gonna, anything I do is going to be a drop in the bucket. I'm going to, he immediately gets a radio, gets a call from his uh, strange wife and goes to save her. And that's the, that's the rest of the movie. He's going and saving – like basically the only people that get saved are people that are in his phone. 
Right. <laughs> people that are in his T-Mobile 5, he's going to go rescue those people. Everyone else, you can go into the ground for all the rock carries. You can go in the tsunami. He's not concerned about you. There's literally a moment when – and I'm so, I'm giving this away, but it's a great moment. I, you know, like Again, spoilers, there's an earthquake. When they're driving in the countryside, do you remember this? They're out sort of like in Bakersfield or whatever. They're on their yes. way the, in, the, in the truck portion of the of the journey. Uh, when they're driving and there's these old people by the side of the road. Oh, yeah. And they're sort of waving and gesticulating. And, and he drives by them. Yes, and what eventually happens is they're like, he realizes why they were waving and gesticulating. But right. until that moment, he's like blown right by them. They're literally, like, it's like they're talking about their marriage <laughs> and their kid, their pro, other kid that died earlier. That's like the sort of, you know, the background for the whole thing. And like they're having a like, it's like they're having couples therapy. And there's there's old people, like old people that you would sort of that you would stop to help on a regular Wednesday when there had not been an earthquake. Alex, I, to their to, in somebody's defense, I believe those people were driving a Volvo. So, I, I guess <laughs> you're, oh, what you're like, oh, I can't find. There's no <laughs> way we're going to find the parts. They're these triaging two don't need, people, need, they don't need our help. I guess, I guess. No, but what's hilarious about that scene is. They they speed past them, get to the realize. Oh wait, we can't go any farther. Have to turn around, and nobody eats any crow. The old people aren't like we told you, dumbasses. That no, the rock is like we owe you guys a big thanks. Right, like (laughs) I mean, what I kind of love about it, the reason I love the aura of irony, it's kind of like if they made a giant expensive movie of like the Tick. You know, like I feel like when I'm watching The Rock, like that's what I watch. I feel like it's like The Tick or Savage Dragon, like one of those kind of like sort of funny versions of a superhero who's sort of an ironic kind of a, a you know, a doofus a little bit. Uh, um, he and Patrick Warburton <laughs> together in a movie would just be. Can we get that going ASAP? I feel like it's yeah, I feel like it's one or the other. I feel like as I watched this, I was like The Rock should have played all of the Patrick Warburton superhero uh, characters. That was that was my feeling, um, but yeah, I'm in I'm, I'm in favor of it. So there's really there are really a lot of moments. <laughs> there's a moment when they're flying in the plane, and the Rock, who is a I I is he's a fireman, right? I mean, like he's a fireman who went into helicopters at some okay, point. One of the, some of the research I didn't do to write this review okay. was what was what that job entails. What is the Rock? Because job? now that you're bringing this up, it's a very good point. Like to be a chopper rescue person. Do you are you also a firefighter? I I assume that it's like being in the army and like you start out you do army and then you decide at some point that the thing within army that you're going to do is fly helicopters. I feel like it's like the same thing and it's like, I could be wrong. Maybe he's like a freelancer and he's like I don't I don't put out the fire. Like I just get the people to the th- but there's a moment when he's flying and like he looks down and there's like a, they both look down like him and Carla Gugino both look down there's a there's a whole a whole mall is like on fire and he looks down he's like oh yeah Bakersfield <laughs> keeps flying <laughs> but of course yet again the movie finds a way to punish them for their hubris that's the first time actually for their like snobbery they have to land in Bakersfield anyway they have to land at that mall. <laughs> But then, they, yeah, then they sort of they loot some some new outfits, and then they're they're on their way. There's literally like you just think, you know, because there is a fair amount of like there's like saving in this movie. But like I just I just watched Earthquake, the 1974 Earthquake, oh, in preparation yes. for this, 
And that's not a very good movie. It's like a really long dragnet episode with earthquakes in it. But there is a lot of like just guys kind of stepping up and saving a bunch of people just because those are the people that are right there that they can save. You know, that like uh, God gave uh, Charlton Heston and George Kennedy, uh, blessed them with hands that work, and he's going, they're going to do this thing, and they're going to, you know, make a fire hose into a thing you can slide down, and whoever's there, they're going to save them. And as a convention of these movies, I feel like that this one just completely throws out the window. Like there's not there's not one second. You know, there's a little. I guess there's there's some, but it involves the the British guys, and they're all just saving each other. You know, that like they're basically they've triaged the entire population of California. Um, like Giamatti saves a bunch of people in the sort of macro sense because he goes on TV and warns everybody to get to high ground. But, I can't do Paul Giamatti accent without. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could do that. I wish I wish I could do the thing that he does when he goes on. But I, now I don't sound like him. But he does this. He has the thing where he uses the reporter to say to everybody, "You know, East Coast, you think you're safe, but you're not safe." Who is that? Who am I doing? Is <laughs> I it like bad know. Carl Malden? What What is that? <laughs> anyway, Gilbert Gottfried. But <laughs> maybe it's a little Gilbert when he played Gottfried. the parrot. <laughs> Yeah, okay. All right, I'm going to stop. <laughs> so the thing about this movie, I mean, the reason the movie is fun, though, is because it's that flagrant. It is the, it is taking, it is showing people like human, hu- like digitized human beings being swept off of bridges and pushed into, into like opening chasms. But the the sort of emotional center of the movie is basically these two parents searching for a daughter that really doesn't need to be found because she's the rock's daughter and is completely self-sufficient while you know also carrying these two human barnacles the two these two british guys um i just i mean that if the movie had been like Earthquake or had been like The Towering Inferno which two movies the two good examples of movies that are really about how you how to save lives in a in a in a disaster right. i mean These the 70s communities you know, that form it within a disaster yes, and, yes. Know, or poseidon adventure which is a mm-hmm. different kind of disaster movie but it's also about a kind of community like a like a washed up showbiz community that forms in the wake of a disaster but this movie i kind of like the these sort of miss the I, I couldn't i had a really hard time articulating what the what the incongruity is here but it's kind of a moral incongruity right because the best line in the movie is in the helicopter when the rock says to carla gugino she says to him like what are we going to do and he you know there's a close up on him and he goes we're going to go get our daughter <laughs> And it just sort of like the whole audience just I don't know if that brought down the house at your screening, but I mean, it was really oh, funny at mine. Well, I should just I should just sidetrack momentarily. Well, keep, keep keep going. I'll tell you the context in which I saw it in a minute. But so that movie is so funny because it it is so morally outsized to the actual scope of the disaster so that if you like the way he says that it's like the most like his daughter is having happened to her the most horrifying like the worst people have captured his daughter and he's going to go get them and hopefully the other people these people have captured from that group of people like terrorists have taken his daughter but no she's just off like (laughs) 
She's in Earthquakeville. I don't know. She's in San Francisco, which is falling apart. I, I, don't, I mean, of course you'd want to save your daughter in an earthquake like this, but I think it's more the, the concentration of narrative, financial, and, and production resources uh, to make that happen that's kind of offensive and therefore hilarious. It's just like the, the movie doesn't... The movie is so flagrant in its disinterest in other people's lives and other people's suffering um, that it that it focuses. And it's also not like the daughter is played by Emma Stone or Scarlett Johansson or Anne Hathaway, um, all people who would make no sense as the rock's daughter as much as Alexandra Daddario does. Um, you know, you're watching this actress that you that you may recognize from one other thing, but have no interest in as a as a subject of a disaster movie. Um, it's just like we don't care about her. <laughs> well, but she's also here's the weird thing for me. I don't know if you felt this way. I certainly felt this way. The very first thing, the thing that we know her from is uh, being topless on True Detective, right? Yes. yes and the yes, very yes. first shot is she's in a bikini by the pool. and Yes, for like, no reason. There is pretty much, the, you are really encouraged to see her as a sexualized object in this scene for no reason at all. Like she's just kind of hanging out, sort of posing by the pool. She looks like Kylie Jenner or something. And then, which is weird because you're about to spend two hours in a helicopter with her dad. Like it's a real, right. it's going to be kind of awkward. Um, but yeah. yeah. And there's, there's really, there's really a lot of like, you can just feel there's a, a studio notes process being like, can we put her in a wet tank top? Can we get that? Can we get that happening? Can we get that popping? Like, you know, and like, and sure enough there, here it comes. Uh, that happens. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's really, I don't know. I don't know why that bothered me. But it because it's gratuitous. <laughs> it's completely gratuitous. It was, and it was, as you said, it's a total studio note. It's absolutely a studio note from that that one guy. Um, uh, yeah. See, I can't I can't really talk about this any further without talking about the other movie that I saw yesterday. And I'm, I'm, I believe there's an, oh, I believe there's an embargo in place that would uh, prevent me yeah. from doing we're, that. We're going to save it for a week. We're going to save it. I wanted man, I wanted to just come out of the gate and talk about it so badly, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So I have a question. Yeah. Why do we like these movies so much? I mean, even if we don't like this one, why? I mean, and, and I like it just enough. I mean, it's bad, but but it's 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 almost the right kind of bad. Uh, like, I, I, but I also prefer it to the spate of movies we, we had previously been getting of just post-apocalyptic dystopic movies where, you know, there are people surviving what what would it what what is happening in a movie like san andreas oh why do we prefer or why do you prefer one to the other or why do like what's what's i mean i mean i don't know i can't i don't i don't purport to speak for everybody sure. obviously the dystopian movies make a lot of money but i okay then i frankly prefer this much much more to as a genre to dystopia films you like yeah destruction destruction versus dystopia is what we're right. saying, yes. what, we're, what we're debating. Yeah, yes. I mean, destruction is it, it, destruction is more fun because I mean, it, it, this movie again, spoilers, ends with you know a, like a relief tent, and here's the survivors, and here's it's all you know, every like society like coming back together and everything. Like you don't see like sort of people scratching to survive in the wreckage of San Francisco or whatever whatever happens. Like dystopia is depressing because it's about like oh now we're gonna have to live with everything 
being, you know, effed up, like, by this uh, disaster. Whereas, like, Destruction, you can sort of... And this movie, I think, is kind of the ultimate version of that to a point that it's it's kind of creepy to watch. You can just enjoy just the abstraction of just watching buildings fall down. Like, there's something, like, I think, like, this brings out your inner sort of, you know, four-year-old that just wants to, like, watch the blocks topple and, like, thinks it's funny. Right, right. You know, I mean, that, that's... Like what's what's weird about it is like it's weird to watch a movie like this now. Uh, the you know I watched a bunch of disaster movies recently, but this is the you know it's, it's it's the first like pure disaster movie we've had in a while. Like there was that Twister movie for uh, you know that I didn't see, but that yeah. twist. Oh wait, from last summer. The, from last Eye summer, of the not, Storm? Twist, not Twister. I don't mean no. I have a storm, movie. which is terrible. Yes, that no, Twister movie bad. sounds like a parody of other successful Twister movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Wayans Brothers, that Twister movie, <laughs> <laughs> the Twister. It's like Paris Hilton's in it. Like so for some reason. Um, no, no, no. I'm talking about the. But like basically, what I'm saying is, it's weird because the superhero movie has compl- has appropriated the vocabulary of the disaster movie, ah, but created point. it as a thing where like the disaster can be punched in the face, you know, and like it will be stopped you know but up till that point like there's a point where avengers becomes a disaster movie the difference being that like it endows these individuals with the power to not just you know save people from it but actually stop the disaster from happening further so it was interesting to see all that because they've developed all this technology that can now be put to use in disaster movies but one thing that happens is that when you're at this vast scale I mean, that's why I liked Godzilla so much, because it's like there's all these buildings getting destroyed and falling down, like that sort of like, you know, big fight at the end of Godzilla and also downtown San Francisco as it happens. But there's some like somehow there's characters in that, you know, like they managed to put people in that successfully. Oh, see, my favorite thing about that movie was the lack of I mean, not the lack of characters, but I loved the monsters and the destruction way more than I liked spending time with Aaron Taylor Johnson. Oh, those. Yeah. No, those parts were deadly when the monsters were. I'm just talking about like when you actually like in like getting putting humans into the shot. Oh, sure. Oh, I see. Having a human presence in those moments of, of, you know, carnage. Where buildings are falling down. Yeah, no, I mean, all those, I, I will never sit through the rest of Godzilla again, but, you know, just the, those, you know, the way that they can put people in that, you know, and there's a moment when, like, the, you know, you have Giamatti sort of watching a dam break and you have him in the shot with the breaking dam and it's like, oh, okay, that's, you know, that that works, that makes this feel somehow, somehow real. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, that's why I feel like it's, you know, dystopia is about, you know, like those those are it becomes it's like the beginning of the stand versus the end of the stand. Right. You know, like there's that mm-hmm, sort of second, mm-hmm. the, like the first half of the stand is all about society kind of crumbling and falling apart. And then the second half of the stand is like, how are we going to turn the power plant back on? Right. You know, Stephen King's yes. novel, The Stand. Yes. Yeah. Which is it's because it's a it's a harder set of things to deal with, whereas like there, there, there's something just, you know, it just becomes it becomes fun and you can sort of abstract from the, you know, the, the more the movie encourages you to do so, like you can do that. I mean, it's it's crazy that, you know, when this after the tsunami hits San Francisco and they're kind of boating around, there's not. 10 million dead people floating in the water with them that it doesn't look like, you know, you forgot to cover the pool and except instead of leaves, it's dead people, you know, and that's what it should be. And like this movie just allows you in a way, I think that's why it's sort of morally squidgy, right? Is that it just allows you to watch this happen without (laughs) contemplating anyone's death at all, except the possibility like, Oh, I hope the British guy doesn't drown. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's the, that's sort of, Thing that I that is it makes the movie watchable in its in its sort of 
in slightly incompetent way, but also in its ultra competent way too. Uh, I mean, as a production, it's ultra competent as a, as anything else. It's not. Um, and in, in the piece that you wrote about disaster movies, you talked about, you mentioned uh, Mike Davis and ecology of fear, which is, you know, the, the, I would say the Bible for this sort of thing. Yeah. I feel like that came up on this show before too. We've talked about that. Yeah. We've talked about that before, but if you have, but I mean, just, I don't know. The appeal of these movies is just so fascinating to me. And the politics, of course, therein are also somewhat inextricably linked from from who gets the who gets the disaster, like where the disaster goes and who 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 perishes and which cities get destroyed. Right. Who perishes on off camera? I mean, the entirety. It was interesting. Yes. San Francisco is represented by Knob Hill. Literally, like the you know one, and they the, have the conversation about. Did you know that that Snob Hill actually comes from, and its nickname is Snob Hill? Did you think you that? Know. Did you? I was trying to figure out why that was there because there was no real reason to emphasize the socioeconomic. Some, I mean, the riches. Somebody was like, "Hey, if we say if we call it Knob Hill, people are going to just think it's a penis joke and they're going to laugh. So we need to tell them why it's called Knob Hill. That's yes, not Knob yeah. with a K. Another that was the studio only, note. Another studio. That was the only thing I could think of was, <laughs> was somebody weighing in in the notes process but so it's that and at&t park which is the very fancy kind of redo of the waterfront down there it's all very kind of moneyed san francisco the presumably the the mission also drowns right i mean the the sort of you know or whatever yeah i mean it's in a valley for sure yeah all of those you know i mean every i don't even know i don't even know but like there's not even we're not even encouraged to even think of that you know, at, at that point, no, There's it's no... just, it's where nobody lives. All of that, all of that housing is like really new and, or there is no housing. I mean, Knob Hill obviously, obviously is Knob Hill. There's, there are places to live, but it's on a hill and is not going to any, 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 any suffering that happens as a result of, of the earthquake is probably going to be not as terrible as it would be in the mission. Look, I'm not a seismologist. I don't know what the fallout of, of an earthquake, of a really, of a, what, 9.1 Nine, yes. would, would be in San Francisco, but I, I don't know. I can't even, I won't even venture a guess, but um, its interest in in the moneyed parts of San Francisco is really interesting and telling and and, and speaks to the, uh, to, to the, to the you know, dubious morality of these movies. Oh, and Coit and, Tower. I'm sorry. Coit Tower becomes really important, and yet they don't know. They don't know where it is. That's always yes, 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 yes. Of course. And um, I don't know. We. I mean, we should probably move on. But I did. I had a good time with this. I just want to say I had a good time too. But the best part of it, I think, was I went to. I I, I needed to see this for this show. Um, needed to go to the movies. At 11 in the morning, because I wanted to go to the earliest <laughs> San Andreas I could see, which is how I ended up at a Mommy and Me screening of San Andreas. <laughs> where, I don't know why this hasn't happened to me before, but I, I just showed up and I was like, oh, there's a stroller parking. That's that's nice for this time of the day. Good good, good for them. And then I watched it. I was like, oh, it's my movie that's, that's like that. <laughs> there was a changing table. In the aisle between the sort of first row and the second row, and I was literally, I think, the only person in there who was not uh, dandling an infant at San Andreas. I mean, no judgment about bringing no. your baby to San Andreas because I, you know, I had an infant once and I would have done anything 
you know, to get out of the house and <laughs> quiet them down. And they didn't honestly sound like they were even, you know, that's a baby. They don't, they're not really, you could take them to anything, I think, and they're not really aware of it. You know, all of the, all the sort of like dubstep, you know, uh, building about to fall down moments didn't seem to be upsetting them or anything. But yeah, I saw it. I saw it in, in that context. The babies, uh, they were okay. We'll be right back to talk about Cameron Coe's Aloha. I don't even remember why we broke up. <laughs> we broke up because you didn't show up on our vacation. Well, I didn't mean to actually talk about that. Oh, no, no. I had three days planned in San Francisco. I had things for us to do and, and things to tell you. And you um, you stayed in Guam. Guam? Really? Don't pretend like you don't remember. Oh, I've waited for this. Hey, if you calm down, I'll try and remember. I'm calm. And this, this feels good. Hey, you know what? I do remember. You said if you don't show up on this vacation, then that's it. Because you're a workaholic who creates work to avoid real work. Yeah, well, I'm still working on that. But to me, you see, a vacation can't be an ultimatum. How can you relax on an ultimatum vacation? The whole concept is stressful. You just had to show up. I was just looking for a gesture. It didn't have to be bold. Just something. I just wanted you to show up. I really loved you. Dude, I am really immune to Rachel McAdams in general, but I kind of love her in this movie. It's the only thing about the movie I really love. I'm I'm keeping my head down and and letting those those night night marchers just just walk by me <laughs> and I'm not going to look up. Don't look up. Because I'll look turn up. to I'll turn to stone. You'll turn to stone. I don't know if that's the prophecy. Oh, do you like Hawaiian? Do you like Hawaiian movie. legends, Wesley? Uh, I I do, as as explicated by actual native Hawaiians, perhaps. Not necessarily by small white children and Emma Stone. Yeah. I mean, look. Here's my feeling about the big again the big controversy. As in, as with San Andreas, the controversy is why doesn't the Rock save any people? other than his own family. This one, I feel like the thing that you can be mad at this movie for without having seen it, which is why this is the, I think the thing that has, has legs is the fact that Emma Stone plays. She's, I don't want to, I don't, there's a, she has a complicated, it's a different quarters are, are different things, but she, she's one quarter. We're supposed just, to believe her as, as at least somewhat Asian, right? Mm-hmm. She's like Hawaiian, not only because the script says, but because the script has her say, really, I'm Hawaiian. Really explains it. <laughs> I'm one fourth Asian. And her last name is Ang, <laughs> as in NG, uh, ring without the R and the I, as she says in the movie. So you're oh. supposed to, like, that's the thing that everybody is kind of up in arms about because you can be up in arms about that without having seen this movie. My, and, you know, and, and, to, and sort of the tertiary thing that's attached to that is that. It is a movie set in Hawaii, much like many movies set in Hawaii, that is about a bunch of white people. And there is a, you know, a very there's a small interlude involving Native Hawaiians, but generally speaking, it is about the problems of white people with Hawaii as the backdrop for for these things happening. I'm going to propose something, though. Having seen the movie, I feel like the Native Hawaiians who are not represented in this movie kind of dodged a bullet. Their Amen. careers will recover. They will survive. They will go on to do other things. 
or not just not be in movies. Whereas this movie, I feel like everyone involved should uh, you know be punished in some way. <laughs> should have to sit it out for a little while. I, I, I that's not true. And so, okay, but the reason that the reason I, that I'm stuck on this is that actually like for all the sort of carping, you know, like not unjustified about the idea of having Emma Stone play this part. Emma Stone is working harder than anyone else in this movie with the worst, most nonsensical combination of character traits to play that I've uh, that I can recall pretty much in, ah, in anything. So recently. Emma Stone is getting your vote. I see. Emma Stone's well, look. No, Emma Stone is carrying a lot of water in a lot of weird receptacles and like really yes. trying. She's really yes. trying with what she is being given. And I feel like to blame, to be like, this is the movie where Emma Stone, where it was ridiculous. It's like, you know, to have it just go down as like the time Charlton Heston played a Mexican is, you know, does a little bit of a disservice to Emma Stone, who is trying. Okay. She's trying. The time Charlton Heston played a Mexican (laughs) was in touch of evil. And, (laughs) and look, that's a, that, that was messed up, but that's a great movie. You know, it's maybe it's a bad example. I don't know, but just to sort of put this—it's a fine example from a star standpoint. But at no, the end of the day, no. But to chalk this up as just purely like as as purely that, you know, I just I feel oh, bad yeah, for Emma no, Stone. That's what course. I'm saying. I feel bad because I feel like Emma, like she's got this part that feels like it feels like a weird sort of uh, you know like Jeff Goldblum teleportation accident of a character that these things are just mm, kind of together. Mm-hmm, she's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she is an uptight, type A, hard-charging fighter pilot who is also – she's a manic pixie fighter pilot on the side. She immediately – she morphs into – she plays the guitar. She kind of helps Bradley Cooper find his smile. You know, like there's a moment – like it's just like part of it is just that it's like it's cut really badly. So there's a moment when she kind of goes into a room as a tight, uptight fighter pilot and then like literally there's a cut – and she's kind of lounging around, sort of get, talking to her mom on the phone in like a man's white shirt, sort of telling this, you know, the story of Bradley Cooper to her mom, you know, and so like in a very kind of Cameron Crowe in a very way. Cameron Crowean way, right? Yeah. Just like it's just a very weird combination of things to have to do, and you know, of, of all the people sort of wasted on this movie, I I feel like she, you know, just I I don't know, uh, I've said my piece. On this, um, I like when she dances with Bill Murray. That's there's a moment where it just becomes Emma Stone and Bill Murray looking at each other on screen, and it doesn't make any sense in the context of the movie, but it's a great moment. Uh, for both that's of the that. best moment in the movie, yeah, to me. Uh, w- let's just explain some things. This is a movie about in which Bradley Cooper plays some sort of military consultant. Uh, who is in the employ of Bill Murray's billionaire who wants to launch a satellite into space that may or may not pose some sort of weaponized threat to national security, if not actually just the state of Hawaii and the spiritual well-being of the native Hawaiians. Bradley Cooper is the emissary sent to make peace with the native Hawaiians get the deal done, get the satellite into space, get this, whatever Emma Stone's actual job is, like why she is necessary at all, this character, is what's, a little bit of a mystery to me. What's Bradley Cooper's actual job? 
I mean, yeah, it, I don't know. If the military is <laughs> in his pocket, what is he? What wheel greasing does he need to actually do? It's so unclear because is is Alec Baldwin his boss? Like Alec Baldwin, who plays a general, is he? And then. There's like, moment- what are the well? At least, what's the kickback situation? Like, I, we need to know exactly who benefits from this satellite being launched into space. And what's his? What is his skill set? Because it's like, is he really good? Because he's sent in to go negotiate some kind of thing involving a pedestrian gate, which doesn't really make sense and doesn't matter. And you, they never, you don't really need to worry about what it is because the movie doesn't. But he's sent in to go do that negotiation right with the native Hawaiians. But then later on, there's a moment when it's like, we need somebody to launch this satellite. And uh, like to actually like run this satellite launch, and only you, Bradley Cooper, have this unique skill set to do it. And also, yes. he invented uh, sound waves of some <laughs> kind. He invented like a sound wave uh, transmission system. He oh invented. Everyone is whatever they need to be. They all have these contingent identities, and everyone is whatever they need to be for whatever the movie kind of needs to keep moving along. You know, so people just develop new personalities. So every once in a while I go to a movie. I mean, and I would say more than once in a while. I would say both when a movie really works, like just really, really works. Or when it doesn't really work, but like there's something about it, like the action sequences are really well made or the performances are really, really strong. And you leave them or, you know, when when the opposite is true in both cases, when nothing when 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 it works on no level. You leave it and what you think both – you leave it and think this and you think it while you're watching it is movie making is such a strange, like basically magical process. And it is a miracle that things come together the way they do it all. Like I just saw Spy last week and I'm watching this movie thinking this should be a train wreck. But it's not because of movie magic, and and I mean like move, like competence really is what I'm talking about. But just and like having an idea of like what your goal is as a as a filmmaker, um, whether you're like the Darden brothers who work on a very small scale with a very finite idea with a sort of small cast in a single in a, like a small cluster of locations, or if you're doing something like San Andreas, which requires um, the opposite of of that. You are responsible for some, you know, the, the group of filmmakers are responsible, is, is responsible for carrying out, executing and, 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 and realizing this, this vision. I mean, whether it's like a grand thematic vision or just the, the actual thing we are watching. Um, and a lot of the times it doesn't work. And it sometimes it doesn't work in a way that is different from the way other things don't work. And what you're talking about is a kind of fiasco or disaster. And then the the subsequent question is, how did this happen? Like what how did we get from from a movie that just didn't work in a way that a lot of movies just don't work because they're boring or the idea was bad or you know, the story was not terribly interesting to this movie by a director who a writer and director in Cameron Crowe, who has written and directed movies that don't have this problem. Um, but increasingly this, his films have Elizabeth town didn't work at all. And we had, we, we bought a zoo kind of worked. Um, but it did, it left you with the same problems because the things that worked in it worked so well. And the things that didn't were just embarrassing. And so how does a movie like this 
begin production if if what we're talking about ultimately is a screenplay that doesn't work? And then once it's in production, how are the things that we are seeing in the 97-minute version of this movie that presumably was like at least an hour longer? How do we get that? How does that happen to us? That's I mean that's the question, right? How much longer right. how much longer was it? At what point because this the the weird part with this one is that we have there's there's Sony emails about it, right? Like yes. there's Amy Pascal emails about it's talking about how what a train wreck it is, and so we know that at some point so th- that was clear to the people responsible for putting it out. I forget w- at what stage of the process there is, but there's one there's a I, and I and I forget I was trying to remember and I forgot to look it up if. It's someone emailing Amy and telling her this, or if it's Amy Pascal emailing someone else and saying and having seen it. But there is a moment when it is assessed, and I remember that basically. I think that the assessment has been borne out by the actual movie. But you can tell that somebody tried to do some, you know, surgery on this. Oh yes, toward, it, you the, can you yes yes like real like some real serious like cramming before the final like you know trying to you know carve a, a workable movie out of it because there's. For all the, you know, it, it, but I think you're exactly right that it was an hour longer because there's a million characters. They all have an arc. Like there's literally, like Krasinski and Rachel McAdams characters. They have a. They are married. They become estranged in the course of this movie. Like he decides that she's changed when Bradley Cooper is there. There's literally not one moment when you would see any sort of evidence of that presenting itself to him. So it happens entirely off camera. So he just kind of up and leaves her at one point. And I feel like that's, that's lost. There's a, that dinner scene. <laughs> There's a, I feel like it's a 36 minute long dinner scene in which yeah, one it's of the, the apocalypse. Now <laughs> it's the apocalypse. Now dinner scene. They're in which one of the scene. things that did not make it to the screen is them eating food. <laughs> There's not one moment when a morsel of food passes anybody's lips, but they hang out at this house. They just kind of roam around this house for the whole time. Like he's like Bradley Cooper just goes in a room is like talking to people like Emma Stone is there. Later, they go out to a like a party at the officers club that we've not been told is going to happen there. But I just thought about it because there's a shot of a table laden with food. Like just like an entire long like eight foot table with like a cake and like all that stuff like just your basic kind of you know spread of food that like never like it was like never happens and so I'm thinking there's you know that that was the thing that I started to realize like oh there is a lot of movie and maybe even some connective tissue that might have made this make some you know degree of sense like maybe I I always wonder about that like is this movie that I'm not liking like would it it's such it's kind of counterintuitive but if it was 45 minutes longer would I have enjoyed this more and maybe yeah I mean I wonder this I mean I wonder the same thing I also wonder whether or not this is this should have been the sort of thing that wound up on HBO for eight episodes oh yeah do you know what I mean like I, I feel like there's a way in which the the bad thing we got i mean and, you know I, and i have to say like again i was charmed by this movie like I, I, even though i know better even though i know that almost none of it works all of that not working kind of charmed me i like bradley cooper i love rachel mcadams in this movie and i like emma stone so much and then you have all these other people like i like alec baldwin's two scenes 
I like the the sort of random. I like it when a movie doesn't have to expl- or doesn't want to explain everything to me. But it wasn't like being at, you know, like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, for instance, where you or or a Michael Hanukkah movie where you don't you don't know everything that's happening, or you don't have a you're left in the dark about some things. But that is that's a that seems like a writerly choice. And a, and, a, and, a, and a filmmaker's choice. Right, it's a lifelike as opposed to, lack of knowledge, right? right? It's like you're just watching right. things happen and like people aren't going to stop and explain things to you because that's not how life is. But Right. But this feels more arbitrary than that. Um, and I just feel like it, it, had this been eight episodes of like a half an hour television show, I, I would have... I don't know. I mean, I might have liked it better. I mean, even if it had starred different people, and I have to say that a lot of what charmed me about this movie is the people in the movie. But I mean, if you had found equally charming people, um, although I think that the thing that is so charming is that like the charm that these three actors have in particular is, is there, there's nobody who is charming in the way that three that, that Bradley Cooper and Rachel McAdams and Emma Stone are charming. But it's such um, a weird underdeveloped triangle. Like I just you're mentioning those three people and the idea is like, oh, I'm going to go see this movie and I'm going to see Bradley Cooper, Rachel McAdams and Emma Stone kind of vie for each other's affections or whatever. And it, it's there's I like the relationship that Bradley Cooper and McAdams have, because at some point it's it you you pretty much get that like this is they're not going to get back together. That's not what this is about. You know, mm-hmm. and so there's that mm-hmm. thing where like he, she starts to treat him like a girlfriend a little bit. And like that is the kind of thing that if there was more, if it had been sort of, you know, explicated over a longer timeline, I think that could have been a great, interesting relationship to watch unfold. But instead, it's just this weird, they have this weird stilted kitchen scene. And then there's a few, you know, it, everything has to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Like, why is he, you know, why is Cameron Coe still making movies? But I also feel like, like movies as opposed to, you know. Uh, moving into a realm where presumably like he would be filmmaker Kevin Crow comes to television. I don't know. Maybe he's, you know, maybe it just doesn't, you know, maybe because he's, he wants to, you know, light on screen and I get it. You know, I don't know. No, I, yes. And I also feel like that, that what we're talking about is kind of like an old guard way of thinking about, you know, I mean, we talk a lot about you and I talk about, um, indulgences and what it means to, you know, like who gets to make things and like why we have to like watch what we have to watch and why somebody else couldn't have gotten, why didn't somebody else get a chance to do that? I think this is one of those things where like the capital spent the sort of artistic capital, the thing that people complain about, like why aren't there more movies by adults for adults starring adults with adult problems and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I think that, the cynical answer, if you're a certain kind of executive or a certain kind of money person who sees this movie or sees what's happening to this movie, is that you say, well, this is what happens when you make a movie for an adult. It like it, it turns into Sesame Street and, oh, well, more explosions in comic book movies. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't even know if I reject that response, even though I just made it up and I just put it in some studio guy's mouth. Um, I mean, I do feel like there's a way in which you could argue that that a certain kind of idiosyncratic filmmaking is an indulgence because you don't really know what you're going to get, which is certainly a slightly a slightly different model in the movies than the way, say, book publishing works. Right. Where like you can count on a great 
author to continue to have a sort of built-in audience for for a new book like you know not that Cameron Crowe and Toni Morrison are even remotely comparable but there is a sort of mouth-watering anticipation for a new Toni Morrison book that is not dissimilar to the excitement and glee people have for the idea of a new Cameron Crowe movie and I just think that at the movies that model doesn't I don't know that that model really bears out anymore when the movie doesn't work um, I'm not exactly sure what I'm saying, but I feel like there's a math there's a math problem in this, right? Like, how many Cameron Crowe Alohas are allowed to fail? Or Cameron Crowe, um, you know, we bought a zoo, which was not a it was kind of a hit. And this movie could turn out to be a, a I mean, I don't think it's going to be a bomb at all. Um, I mean, how many more of these movies can can happen until? the thinking against them turns and, you know, a studio like Warner brothers isn't putting this movie out. It's, um, I don't know. Sony. It's Sony. Oh, sorry. Sony. Sony. Yeah. 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 Sorry. It's Sony. Sony, Sony, Sony. It's not Sony that's putting the, or Warner brothers or whoever is dealing with, with these. Um, in this case, it's Sony, you know, and it's, it's a smaller studio that has less money to spend to market and advertise this movie. And it's something like Andrew Bajalski's results, which we're going to talk about next week. I mean, I just feel like the pressure put on a movie like this. I mean, a, a couple of years ago, this would have been like he would have been, I mean, with a slightly different script. I mean, this would have been a James L. Brooks movie and it would have been well received or well enough received. Um, and would have come out in like October or November and would have done pretty well. And, um, but you know, now James L. Brooks isn't James L. Brooks anymore. And so, I mean, I think the thing that I'm wondering is like, like, should we should be looking somewhere else to not a different model, but like other places in the marketplace in the movie going marketplace for movies allegedly about adult people allegedly made by adults. Um, concerning alleged adult problems. It's not that, that this movie should kill all those other movies dead. It's that, you know, I mean, I think more thought should be put into making them as opposed to what I would say this movie is, which is kind of an indulgence. Yeah, it is. I mean, and I, I think, you know, the most the most depressing part about it is that it's not it's not Cameron Crowe in the dark about his strengths. You know, it's not him doing something that's outside of his, his zone that he can't do. Like he doesn't really do that. It's so Cameron Crowe. It's mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, purely mm-hmm. Cameron Crowe. And so, and every, it's not even like vanilla sky, right? I no, mean, it's, it's closer. It is... to, it's right in the, right in the wheelhouse. Like that's the weird part of it. It's not like, yeah, vanilla sky, which I kind of love. I think it's a mess and it's crazy. You're like, kind of crazy. I know. I know. I'm like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to make this, I'm not going to sidetrack this and make it about me and vanilla sky and my feelings about that movie. Cause I do really like it. Um, but it's okay. not, that's not the point. The point is that this is not, this isn't Cameron Crowe stretching, outside of what he can do about, you know, sort of, and, and, and failing in that way. It's, it's so, it's the opposite. It's him kind of like just doing Cameron Crowe. It feels like someone trying to rip off Cameron Crowe in parts. Mm. And it feels, mm. and every, like every line has been kind of hand tooled so that it could potentially be another, you had me at hello. I feel like it's, people are speaking in Cameron Crowe-isms. Um, but no, I mean, to, to your point about, the, the, like it's the machinery is no longer equipped to 
make to put these things out in that way. Like this is certainly I, I'm this movie was certainly done a disservice by having to go through the same machine that puts out Spider-Man sequels, you know, in the same yes. sort of process that yes. leads to those things happening because it's never going to be that. And when you see it sort of going through like that's the thing about those Sony emails is that you realize that a movie like this has to go through that same notes process and that same kind of you know that that you know people looking at it in the same way and kind of evaluating it on the same level and it's like you know it's just weird because suddenly this is like even like you said it's probably not going to be a bomb we saw it on friday night there were a lot of people there you know like even after like you know word was presumably out about you know the sort of how the reviews were or whatever but it's you know i, I didn't like while we're young that much but like mm-hmm. Noah Baumbach is going to make another movie in a year and a half, you know, and it's going to be fine. Like there's, you're always going to have. He's like, got another one. It's already done. It's, it's like, in the yeah. can. I've seen it. It's, like, <laughs> it's weird, but it's good. Yeah, I mean, look, and that's not going to like Noah Baumbach can kind of blow it like a, once or twice, and like it's not a big deal because like the you know he's working at sort of you know a, a level where like that you 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 have room to fail, you know, and right. like the it's, movie, and his movies make money. Yeah, because they're in not, their way. They they're hits. Yeah, and like maybe he can't afford like that, you know, as uh, crazy expensive of a soundtrack. You know, I think like that's part of it. I think Cameron Crowe has to continue working at this level because his like needle drop costs are like off the charts. You know, <laughs> it's like it's all like every time there's like you know some like really great like Rolling Stones song or whatever that you're like, oh, that's where all the you know, that's why this movie this is, has to be, make a hundred million dollars. Like you know, whatever. But yeah, no, it's just it, it's just interesting because like he that. You know, those those economies and that, you know, that scale, like for some reason, like he has to, you know, he sort of continues to need to operate on that level. And I think like, you know, it's it, it's it's too bad because I, I feel like with a little less pressure, but also I feel like that's weirdly dramatized in all these movies because they're all about these guys who like, uh, you know, take a bunch of people's somebody else's money and fail spectacularly with some project that, you know, is like do if you look if you go back. We were actually in the car on the way home trying to figure out if there's one Cameron Crowe movie that does not contain a giant professional failure. Um, yeah, no, I mean, they're all about corruption or like corruption, like actual, like corruption, moral corruption or spiritual corruption and the rerouting of and redemption of of that of that corruption in some ways or like moving past it. If you're Ioni Sky and John and John Ke- or Ioni Sky herself with um, John Mahoney and, and say anything. I mean, it's no, I mean, that is, that is a right. That is a R I T E of a Cameron of a, of a Cameron Crow or the Cameron Crow experience like is, is weathering, you know, some asshole and his actions. Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, it's, I just, I don't know. I feel like the, the the sort of larger human project of, of, of the Cameron Crowe experience is replicable other places since it began, you know, since other directors perfected it and did it, I would say to, did it better than he did in a couple movies. And, you know, in his two best films, I would say, Uh, you know, like Billy Wilder, this was an ongoing concern of his is like trying to find somewhat comedic ways of, of, of dramatizing bad behavior. Um, right. And that's um, Billy Wilder, who's Cameron Crowe's guy, like who's like yes. the guy for him. Right. And, and, you know, James L. Brooks, who, you know, two of his best movies are about similar things. Um, and some of his best television shows are about this, this sort of 
ambiguous, you know, the sort of ambiguous humanity of, of, of people and their behaviors in relationship to their jobs. And I don't know. I mean, we're talking about a very complex corner of American popular culture creation, um, of which, you know, Cameron Crowe is a disciple. And, you know, the thing that the reason that we are so the reason the people who were disappointed by this movie and, and any Cameron Crowe movie that doesn't work is that, you know, I mean, he's there aren't many people who are interested in that project anymore. I mean, even on TV, I mean, that kind of thing is 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 a little bit hard to come by. Um, and so, you know, this is movie making in some ways without a net. There's no genre to sort of fall back on. There's a personality of a director. But, you know, you know, how personalities are they're unreliable. Um, and in this case, his personality is sort of off. Um, but I just, I just hope that like, if this movie is deemed a failure in whatever way it means to, to fail under these circumstances, it it is not a prohibitive failure and that, and that, you know, that judgment is not prohibitive, prohibitive and does not prevent other directors from getting a chance at a, at a big studio to continue to do this. I mean, Cameron Crowe is sort of Cameron Crowe at this point, but like a future Cameron Crowe, I, I just feel like all of those people, you know, as we've not cynically, but somewhat lamentably discussed, wind up making action movies and superhero movies and such things. Um, and not necessarily because they don't, because, you know, they're being forced to. But I mean, I also don't know if there is another avenue to do that kind of work, to do this kind of work at a studio anymore. Um, because there isn't uh, the equivalent of like an arts editor you know, everything is sort of routed through the through the through the sort of wider machinery of of the studio production, which is obviously why a good producer really comes in handy. And you know, one of the producers on this movie is Scott Rudin, who's you know very prolific and very busy. Um, and you know, at some point, you know, Cameron Crowe's two best movies were produced by James L. Brooks, or had you know were associated with James L. Brooks and Polly Platt. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I just hope it's not the end of of a kind of movie that I really, really adore. Um, it just, I did not really, really adore this version of that kind of movie. Um, we're going to go out on this segment with the best moment in the movie, which is uh, The Gap Band's Outstanding. Talk about uh, needle drop costs. I don't know how much this song was, but it was worth it. Alex, yes. you and I have never had a conversation about this person because there's never really been much of a reason to to say anything nice about this guy. Because you know, since we've been doing this podcast, all this person has really been is a TV actor and a award show host. But it's Sam of the Week time, and I really, I don't know. I I've, I've had this moment a couple weekends ago where. Uh, for whatever reason, I wanted to listen to a certain album, which is apparently out of print. So I ordered, I found a copy of the album because, you know, I live in, I live in a city where it's not terribly difficult to do that. Uh, I purchased it, listened to it. This is a movie, this is an album that was considered a bomb. 
uh, when it came out because, you know, it followed two very good records by this person. Um, the, my jam is not from that album, but we can talk about what it is. You can, Joe, you can just play it. It's fine. Um, When you said award show host, I was thinking. I mean, I, I was, I was, I was thinking. Oh, uh, Hugh Jackman. But then I was like, what would the jam be? I'm a big I mean, fan. I'm a big, I'm a big fan. This takes me back to a, a the, to a moment when I was a big fan, and the, the, the period that I'm a big fan of. Is this, uh, is this from 14 Shots to the Dome? No, it's from the one before that. It's from Mama, Mama said, said Knock You Out, which is great. It's a really good album. This is a really good album. It's really yeah. I mean, like Hello Cool J. If you're listening, and, and we mean, know that you are. You, come on, dude. You had it going on for like four. I mean, Walking with the Panther. I think is needlessly hated on. That's the movie that I. That's the record that I bought a couple weekends ago. Okay. Oh my god, that record is like if that came out. Well, if it came out now, it, it would be like anything that came out now. Like people would sleep on it. But I mean, it, it is a really good record. <laughs> so yeah, I mean this, like yeah, I mean that it, because this is from Mama said knock you out is produced entirely by Marley Marl, right? Like that's yep. the one, like Molly Marl. Then yep. that is look. We need that. That I that, that should that should happen more. Those that I I miss those I miss those days. The the one producer album, one producer yeah, hip hop no, album. I mean, this marks it's got me a consistent as sound. Father Time. I know. It just may, but I I miss I miss those days. I miss like DJ Premier does an entire Jeru the Damage album. You know. I agree. Just, no time to kind of like really sort of like you hear somebody within like one person's aesthetic all of that but no LL I find incredibly uh, it's it's weird because he's obviously I think probably LL's Cool J wakes up and goes to sleep and is like I'm really successful and I've really made it and like, it really happened but like I just I, I find the iteration of him that hosts award shows it's just such a sad thing because it's like what well, you're so far from the thing that you were best at right but it, it also is such a continuation of what a showman he kind of sure. is like the sure. video for this for this video I mean the video for this song He's so sexy. And not that he's a sexy award show host, but he's also a ham. But, I mean, this guy is a sexy rapper. How many sexy rappers are there now, really, truly? Like, where you hear them and you hear the sex in their voice? I mean, Rakim, Guru, LL, I think they're the three sexiest rappers maybe ever. Um... I mean, there'll, probably, there'll be somebody else that, that comes to mind at some point. But he's also funny. Those two guys weren't funny. LL is really a comedian, too. And this album is full of, like, the same comedy that was on the first three records. Um, anyway, I don't know. It's time. It might be time to have the LL revisitation. Um, and if you haven't seen the video for this movie, I'm going to, for, uh, for this record, I'm going to put on the show page. It's really funny um, and, and kind of hot. Uh, that's our show this week. I'm Wesley Morris. I am Say goodbye, Alex. Alex. Thanks um, to thanks to Joe Fuentes. Thanks to David Jacoby. Thanks to Ella Cool J for for pink cookies in a plastic bag getting crushed by a building. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Thanks for listening, you guys. We'll talk to you next week. to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.